Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. The Fascia Research Society invites the listeners of the Thinking Practitioner Podcast to the 6th International Fascia Research Congress in Montreal, September 10th through 14th, 2022. Eight keynote speakers, including our guest today, over 60 parallel session talks and posters, 15 workshops, including one that I'm giving on inflammation and fascia on September 11th, and a two-day fascia-focused dissection workshop are all on offer. The full Congress schedule is out now. Register for the 6th International Fascia Research Congress today at fasciaresearchsociety.org. Hey, Whitney, we have a special guest today. Who's with us today? Yes, we are very honored today to have Dr. Stuart McGill with us. Uh, he is a distinguished professor emeritus from the University of Waterloo, where he was a professor for 30 years. Um, his research investigated issues related to mechanisms of back pain, how to rehabilitate back pain people and enhance injury resilience and performance. So uh, people from all over the world, high professional uh, athletes, professionals, patients from all over the world seek out his help on musculoskeletal back pain issues. And he has produced over 245 peer reviewed scientific journal papers, several textbooks and many international awards, including the Order of Canada in 2020 for leadership in the back pain area. And he is currently the chief scientific officer for BackFit Pro. And we are absolutely delighted and honored to have Dr. McGill with us. So welcome, Dr. McGill. Thanks very much for joining us today. Well, first of all, thanks so much, Whitney and uh, Till. And I hope from now on it can be Stu. We'll dispense with the doctor and professor right. stuff. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right. Then. Yeah. So we will, we will do that. So thanks. Thanks again so much for joining us. And we'll talk a bit more about some of the other things that you've done here as we get through this conversation here, but I want to really uh, jump right in here so we can uh, take the, the meat of our time to really get into some good stuff here. I wanted to start with one question here um, that uh, has fascinated me. I've, I've been looking forward to having a chance to talk with you about this for a very long time. So in, in any respect, uh, I heard you say one time that there is no such thing as non-specific back pain. And I believe you'd mentioned that that was mainly in many instances because people had not done a thorough enough investigation to identify what was really causing a primary uh, pain complaint. So could you comment on that uh, idea a little bit? Yes. The essence of, of that question and debate is certainly something I understand, but it's not new. You know, you think back to the early 1900s, the famous Einstein-Niels-Bohr's debates on relativity and uh, in that debate, Einstein famously quoted, God does not play dice with the universe. In other words, it's a deterministic system with cause and effect, and it has some specificity. But what he did introduce was a new set of equations that people began to understand and explained this very deterministic world. Uh, going back over 30 years ago, I, I realized that I, I was just starting to see patients myself, and they would come in with these diagnoses of, of uh, nonspecific back pain. And, and I was seeing that nonspecific back pain begged nonspecific treatments. Right. Nothing yeah. worked or everything worked. Mm -hmm. So I set aside uh, on, on a little bit of a mission, I suppose, to create what I ended up calling the six pillars of evidence. The first was uh, an in vivo, or sorry, an in, well, an in vitro laboratory where it was set up to measure live people with pain, without pain, some doing extraordinary things, lifting world record loads off the ground, sprinting fast, etc. We would measure muscle activity and uh, use various methods to transform that into measures of force and stiffness. We would measure through modeling uh, disc deformation, ligament strain, and I even had a lumbodorsal fascia. You'll be happy with me <laughs> in that first model of, of uh, 40 years ago, almost to this year. Uh, in any case, um, trying to create stress maps. And it was so interesting that the regions of highest stress 
was where people reported the most pain. Um, then we decided, well, we better see what these stresses do to real spines. So we would take uh, cadaver spines in the in, in vivo laboratory, uh, sorry, in vitro, and uh, apply these loads and see the damage that was created in the tissue. So we could link one-to-one uh, overloads of compression or bending or extension or whatever it happened to be. And it, it created very specific types of injuries. Then we realized, well, let's now look at epidemiologically based clusters of people, athletic groups, occupational groups who have similar exposures to these loads. And it was so interesting that the injuries and the pain patterns clustered around sports and jobs. So that was the, the third Part. Then we ran clinical trials, seeing if we could subcategorize these uh, pained people into uh, specific groups, and we would try specific types of treatment. And the odd thing about our research clinic that the dean asked me to start at the university, we didn't have one at the time. We followed up with every patient we ever saw. So we know the subcategory that they fell into. We know whether they complied with our recommendations or not. And we know how they were after two years in, in, in a follow-up. We did, uh, so th that was both the, the uh, fourth and the fifth part of the uh, pillars uh, running the experimental clinic. And then we uh, also did, um, uh, let's see, uh, clinical trials, clinics, and uh, some, yeah, experimental runs with military groups, uh, different sports teams, et cetera. So um, can you imagine taking a much simpler system than a human, let's take a car, even though it has, I don't know, 20 some odd onboard computers, taking that to your car mechanic and say, my car has non-specific dysfunction. And the mechanic says, ah, with all non-specific dysfunction, we change the engine. Mm -hmm. So you need specificity to uh, match a uh, evidenced uh, intervention. So that then led to our assessment to try and create very specific low back pain subgroups. It starts with simply observing the person. Uh, as we begin an extensive interview, it, it simply starts, it's open-ended, tell us why you're here. And people will give you gold if you let them. For the first time in their lives, they tell you, well, you know, I get up in the morning, I, I have this stiffness, and no one has ever asked them to look at their mattress, for example. Um, and then we might have a follow-up question, do you have sharp pains in your back when you roll over? Uh, yes, I do. It's interesting that that answer correlates to the amount of joint instability that they have. So the movement catches and whatnot, they're not nonspecific and random. They are very specific. Uh, then we create a provocative testing session to test the hypotheses based on the pattern recognition that we did listening to their stories. Uh, then we uh, converge on uh, the motions, the postures, the loads, the activities that trigger their pain. We know what doesn't trigger their pain. And then we try and create movement hacks and test alternate hypotheses to see if uh, we can, uh, in some cases, immediately change the pain pattern. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that's what we call the, uh, uh, the antidote. So there's a little bit of uh, a start, I suppose, um, but I will say this as well, and I know this is getting to be a bit of a long-winded answer. Once we show the individual that their pain is not specific, but in fact, it's very specific, generally two reactions occur. One is they become, thank goodness, for the first time, I understand my pain now, I'm not crazy. And in fact, they become psychologically empowered ah, I've got an understanding and a strategy of how to control this. But conversely, some also get very angry and they say, I've gone through all of this suffering unneedlessly and yet you're showing me a strategy uh, that uh, empowered me to, to have some direction on this pain that yeah. I thought was nonspecific. So there's a little bit of a start. 
Yeah. So let me follow up with that just a little bit too. You know, my kind of passion and interest in this in this field and arena is, is a lot around uh, accurate assessment of soft tissue pain and injury problems. And it's, you know, it's, this is one of the reasons that I want to kind of delve into that a bit more. And um, it, it sounds as if, you know, you're saying that there is really a need in many instances for a more detailed type of assessment process with many of these people who come in with pain problems. And one of the things I want to uh, kind of hear your perspective on, there seems to have been, at least in my perception, a bit of a backlash, both in our field and in a number of other fields in physiotherapy and some other places too, in recent years around, uh, you know, with sort of this uh, proliferation of, of interest and focus on pain science, um, looking at pain as this more complex biopsychosocial problem. And I've, I've heard a number of clinicians say things like, oh, I don't need to go through that detailed assessment anymore because, you know, we need to just treat people's pain more holistically. Um, and, and it seems like that has led to less emphasis in some instances on assessment. And I'm curious about your, your thoughts about that, if you think that's, you know, a perspective that's missing some things, or is, is that a decent, decent way to be focusing on these things? No, I disagree with it very strongly. I, uh, my first degrees were in the Department of Kinesiology, and I ended up as a professor of spine biomechanics in the Department of Kinesiology, and I was the chair of the department for a number of years. The motto of the department was from cell to society. We had professors of sociology, psychology, physiology, anatomy, biomechanists, neuroscientists, we had surgeons, etc. We covered the waterfront, and I know some people who don't know our background, say, oh, well, McGill is all mechanical and doesn't appreciate this, this sort of work. My PhD mentor uh, worked in industry and was one of the leaders in measuring stressors on workers from valid and robust psychosocial inventories, personality profiles, et cetera, together with fairly robust biomechanical measures. Then he would... Uh, assess those workers all doing the same job. So he did a large study at General Motors, for example, because the work population was in the hundreds of people all doing the same job. So the physical exposure was the same. There was another study done at Boeing aircraft, people who uh, rivet, you know, aluminum sheets together, all doing the same job. Um, as it turned out, those uh, who, well, I'll, I'll just, back up one more uh, layer here. The dominant determinant of who had musculoskeletal disorders, of which back pain was the most dominant, were those who had the greatest mechanical exposure closest to the physical tolerance of their tissues. Genetics also mattered, body type mattered, size of their spine mattered. Um, a thick spine breaks sooner when it's bent but it, 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 it has a higher tolerance to compression, just like a tree. You can bend a thin branch back and forth without a lot of stress, but it will break under compression. Whereas a bigger tree breaks much sooner when you bend it to the mm -hmm. same degree, but it can support much more compression. So the mechanics dominated the instigation of the disorder and pain. The genetics predisposed certain people to that and how they handled the pain was uh, influenced by the psychosocial milieu. Now, when you then use statistics to quantify the relative role of those three things, mechanics and mechanical exposure dominated. Mm -hmm. uh, in some, but what happens is in the scientific studies, particularly uh, in the last 10 years, the psychosocial pain science groups and whatnot look at those variables and they don't look at the mechanical or the, some of the genetics. Scientists find what they look for. So of course they find a statistical uh, support for psychosocial variables. But every study that I know of that's measured the relative role of all three show the mechanics dominate. Uh, so in that way, we can't dismiss any of them, but we have to put it in that context. So does that help um, answering that specific question? Yeah, certainly, yeah. 
Absolutely. Thanks. It does. And your uh, your, uh, reputation as one of the world's leading back experts was really built on the specific research you did around the mechanisms you've done for many years over the mechanisms of back injuries. And then your detailed patient intake process of really helping narrow it down to specific movements, say, that could really either provoke the pain. And so then you've somehow uh, been championed as the Mr. Mechan- Mr. Mechanics, Mr. Biomechanics. He says the tissues matter and we got to pay attention to those. So then help me understand what you called virtual surgery. And because that's, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily paradoxical, but you're doing something that isn't tissue-based and having some interesting results. Yes. As I mentioned with our experimental research clinic at the university, on intake, we would uh, assess the uh, back-pained person. And if they fell into this category till you will see the foundation of virtual surgery. If they had tried everything, and this is what they had heard from their clinician, you've tried everything, you've been to the chiropractor, you've been to the therapist, you've been to the rolfer, you've been to the osteopath, you've seen a neurosurgeon, et cetera, et cetera. None of it worked. Therefore, the last hope for you is surgery. So if that's the category that that person fell into, we would assess them try and understand the specificity of their pain, show them how to avoid their pain and wind it down. Uh, In other words, when you examine the role of surgery, they have to stop doing the mechanical things that unbeknownst to them were keeping them sensitized. So it was an automatic way to desensitize the system. It was forced rest. And I'll give you an example. You might have a, uh, Uh, a woman, 35 years of age, two young kids at home. And she says, I have got to go and ride the elliptical trainer for 40 minutes every day at the gym. Otherwise I will become so stressed. Something bad is going to happen. In other words, she's a addict to that 40 minute exposure of load. But then when we do the provocative testing, we prove to her that that is the cause of your pain let it rest for a while. She says, well, I I can't. And then you're into a bargaining session. Well, now you have to play hardball. And how do you deal with with an addict? You've got to have some way to to break the addiction. Um, In any case, we then, uh, I didn't come up with virtual surgery, but I've certainly uh, championed it. So for that particular person, as it turned out, we'll be very dramatic and say, look, there, there's your surgery. Now, are you going to the gym tomorrow to ride the elliptical? You pretend and like you did the surgery. You do something where it says, let's pretend like that happened. And now recover like a post-surgical patient. Now here's now the really number. recover, really go through the recovery as if you'd had it. Yeah. Right. And now here's the interesting fact. We would then follow up with those people within two years. 95% of them reported that they were glad they didn't have the real surgery uh, and, uh, I mean, there you have it. Now I know that that was, a, that was a fact. Now, not every subcategory we have is that successful, of course, but that was our most successful category following the, uh, approach of virtual surgery. Let me see if I get it right. So people that were at, at their wits end, they tried everything. were contemplating surgery in line for surgery. You said, let's try this. Let's say, let's pretend you had the surgery. Let's say here it is. Now go ahead and do everything you would have done to recover from that surgery, including sounds like mostly rest. And you're saying that. Well, it was, it it was rest to create uh, a desensitization of Ah. the pain and then a plan of graded exposure to adapt their bodies back to be robust enough to do what it is they needed to do. Now that might've been getting back to work. It might've been, uh, their passion might've been cycling, road cycling or going for hikes or whatever it happened to be. And if you know our history, there's been many a world-class athlete who we have done this with, we have restored full athleticism so that they've returned to set world records in speed, power, strength, sport using this approach of let's let's put you through the virtual surgery in quotes 
and uh, help you go through what you would have gone through just without the knife? Uh, well, a little bit more if they're going to compete at the world level. We have okay. to adapt their bodies to uh, withstand those. Uh, but, you know, uh, we all understand tissue adaptation. The language of cells and adaptation is force and, and pressure. That's what, this, that's what causes the adaptation. It's, it's not, uh, well, we can get into a psychological um, uh, cofactor there if you wish, but uh, it's dominated by uh, uh, force and pressure. Can I, can I just go a little bit off piece with this one? Can I have both of your permission to follow this line sure. a little bit? Yeah, 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 of course. Okay, so I'm really interested in this too, and this listening to a couple of your interviews as I got ready for our conversation. I, I Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think you're working with people's attitude work toward what they're working as to what they're doing as well. Like I'm thinking about the the quote attributed to you, like if you approach something, you were asked something about like, what's the right position for your spine or your legs under your spine? And you said, imagine you're about to dance. Or you said, uh, just so many of your uh, recommendations around the quote, correct way to do it had to do with a perspective or attitude toward that movement. Am I am I on track at all around that? Well, yeah, partially. Uh, if a person has no pain, I yeah. don't have much of a guideline to 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 go with or to give them. But when okay. they have pain, remember in our world, it's no longer non-specific. It's quite specific. That now gives me a, a roadmap, and I'll say, look, here we, we we've documented what is triggering your pain, and. Uh, if you can avoid that and allow the desensitization to occur, you've now created some room margin for error, and mm -hmm. uh, you can you can misbehave a little bit. And our mm -hmm. our our job is to get you back so you can misbehave quite a bit. But right now, a small uh, misbehavior you are going to pay for. And if you want to get into the fascial world, uh, for example. Uh, I had a patient not too long ago where they had non-specific back pain until they arrived here and they really had some nasty nerve tethering. And uh, we documented that. We were able to create stresses and releases of very specific nerve roots. But then, you know, I've, I've been a, a real... A uh, uh, fan, I suppose, of Tom Meyer's work over the years. So, and then I started to play with fascial tightening and releasing. Now, this person had uh, some surgery, and uh, I am convinced there was now a mechanical tether from the fascia to the nerve root. It wasn't uh, hung up on a disc or a bit of arthritic bone. Now, this had never been shown to them, but when I asked them, put your arm over your head, now, push your heel towards the ceiling and go into internal external rotation around the shoulder. Do you know this, uh, this Fenta zinger down their leg, down the, uh, the femoral nerve root. And uh, what am I doing? I'm playing with a fascial train. So these are the things I'm going to talk about in Montreal. They didn't have non-specific back pain. It was so specific, <laughs> but no one had taken the trouble to act like Sherlock Holmes. And, and go that, where no other detective had ever gone before. And you cannot believe the psychological unleashing that they just uh, expressed right in there. I'm not crazy. There is a reason for my pain. I get it. Now I can modulate that. I, my, where I place my hand now determines the zingers down my leg. And, uh, you know, it was perfectly repeatable. Uh, anyway, I, you might enjoy that, Till. Yeah. <laughs> I do appreciate that, sir, because I am. That's a, that's a model I use quite a bit: the nerve tethering or the fascial glide around the nerve roots, and something like sciatic pain, and then the empowerment that people feel when you when they can dial it down to a movement that either provokes or relieves the pain, gives us a sense of control, and so we can do something about it. And often, now, it and I, I have a follow up question for you. All right. So I know your background. Um, I see quite a number of world-class rowers. I cannot palpate their 
uh, spinous processes because of the heaviness of the fascia. The adaptation that they have created is uh, astounding. And uh, so how do you handle that with uh, such an enormous tough tissue that, that puts them on the uh, one percentile of being a human? <laughs> yeah. Well, my, maybe this is the background of my questions to you about virtual surgery and the attitude piece. I, uh, my target is often not their fascia, but their pain, their disturbance. And there's lots of ways to work with people's pain and disturbance without necessarily needing to rake through every fiber of their fascia, mm -hmm. including movement, including, uh, uh, you know, carefully modulated, you said graded exposure, those kinds of things that really help shift someone's experience of pain, for mm -hmm. example. I remember uh, a famous quote of uh, Yonda's mentor, uh, a neurologist named Carol Levitt. And he said, he who treats the site of pain is lost. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that in all cases, but certainly uh, we live in a mechanical linkage and a disturbance in one area yeah. will work its way through the linkage. Yeah, that's right. And by disturbance, I'm saying like their experiential disturbance of being in pain. And then the mechanical puzzle of what is linked to what and where is this, what are the origins of that is a, is a fascinating puzzle to untangle. Whitney, yeah, you had a question about Yonda's stuff. Yeah, we did. And I was uh, pondering to that that uh, quote from Carol Levitt, because I'd heard that years before too. And, and maybe perhaps a, a more accurate way to refrain that would be, you know, he who focuses exclusively on where that side of pain is might be lost. Um, so, uh, but yeah. Um, I, oh, sorry. I, and, I mean, and I just got to put this in. Yeah. In the structure integration tradition, Ida Rolf's, one of her most famous quotes was, where you think it is, it ain't. So it was almost the other, the needle was at the other end of the dial there. She's saying it's it's never where you think it is, mm -hmm. which is just another place on that continuum. But go ahead, yeah. Whitney. Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. I was, um, we mentioned Vladimir Yonda a moment ago, and I was curious for your take on this because most of us dealing with, soft tissue work in depth have, have been influenced or, or certainly encountered his models over the years. And there's been some recent uh, research and debate around the, the primary models of the upper and lower crossed syndromes. And I'm curious for your take on, the, on that in terms of the accuracy of, of those particular models. What are your thoughts about that? Well, uh, I had the chance to put on a clinical session with uh, Vladimir Yonda. This was a, a session set up by Craig Levinson in uh, Buffalo. And I was somewhat familiar with his uh, teachings, but the first lesson I learned that day was to just observe him. As clinical delegates would file into the uh, lecture hall, he was watching them. He was watching them all and doing pattern recognition. And he knew who he was going to bring down to, to do demonstrations on. Those patterns were that overt that he could see with his eye just coming uh, into the room. And that, that was a lesson in pattern recognition that uh, I never uh, thought uh, or, or, or um, uh, lost, shall we say. I can only comment on the lower cross syndrome because that's what we investigated. Mm -hmm. um, what Yonda said in the lower cross syndrome was that pain corrupts. Those with back pain, some of them, uh, get a, uh, now if I can remember what his terms were, he said it causes muscle weakness on one side of the joint and tightness on the other. But my impression and what I came to appreciate was he really meant neurogenic inhibition of the hip extensors mm. and neurogenic facilitation of the hip flexors. So that took me then to an experiment on uh, neurogenic facilitation. I, uh, one of my graduate students, uh, Dr. Stephanie Freeman, uh, who was a former sprinter herself, interestingly enough, we uh, worked with an interventional radiologist who was doing uh, arthrogenic um, 
sorry, what did he call those now? Therapeutic arthrograms. He would fill up the joint capsule of the hip joint and burst it just a little bit in people who were pre-arthritic, but not ready for a full hip replacement yet. It's a very painful, I've had one on my shoulder to increase the uh, mobility. And uh, it's, it's an interesting experience, but nonetheless, it's a very painful uh, experience. Prior to the pain induction, we measured the people walking, doing hip thrusts and all kinds of things, measuring the quadricep muscle activation, the gluteal med, the glute max, the hamstrings, and what were their relative contributions to creating hip torque. When the hip pain was induced, and I now have come to the realization that it's back pain as well, the gluteal muscles in every single one of those candidates became inhibited. The motor control system shifted the responsibility of the glutes to the hamstrings, and it slowly returned as the, as the pain was uh, released. Now, that study has been uh, misinterpreted and uh, by people who've never done this kind of science before, they've, they've uh, talked about it, I guess, on social media, which um, is, is uh, a, a little bit of a, a shame. So maybe that's why you're uh, getting a little bit of a, a blowback on that. But um, Yonda was right in that regard. In terms of neural facilitation, he used the term hip flexors. We found out it wasn't the hip flexors. It was very specifically psoas. And psoas, iliopsoas. Yeah, no, not iliopsoas. There's no such muscle. Okay. Iliacus <laughs> is very separate from psoas. Okay. They've got totally different functions. Now they do share a little bit of a common tendon. But yeah. they're, I'm, you realize, Till, that I'm one of the few people in the world that's measured uh, both of those muscles. We've implanted electrodes in them and measured them. They're very different muscles. And the brain goes and recruits them to perform uh, different functions. So the uh, iliacus is simply a hip flexor. The psoas is a hip flexor but it acts like you can think of it as a wet sock of cement either side of the lumbar spine. But when <laughs> you flex the hip, it stabilizes and holds steady the lumbar spine. To an, if you look at a sprinter, for example, uh, the stresses to their lumbar spine are really mitigated by the cement-like uh, buttressing of uh so so they're very very different muscles sorry for that but <laughs> there you go i love it no i but 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 it was actually it was actually psoas that was uh the facilitated muscle among the hip flexor group and i might say that is not in every back pain or hip pain person but it's in a few and and that's uh, it can be extremely substantial in some and and non of non-interest in others. Can I stick in a comment there question or a question with me? Yeah, go, yeah, go right. So how does that translate, Stu, in terms of position, do you think? Pelvic tilt or things like that? Because Yanda's model is sometimes just uh, interpreted as a positional model. Is the pelvic tilted or not? And if it's not, then it's, you know, lower cross. Oh, well, I, I, I think that's a misunderstanding. He was very much about the muscle activation profiles uh, together with posture. And what posture does is it migrates stress from one tissue to another. Uh, that is further modulated by how the brain recruits muscles uh, to uh, create torques and stiffnesses uh, in the linkage. And we can get into linkage mechanics if you like. Um, if I wanted to wiggle my little finger very, very quickly, I had to stiffen my hand and wrist. If I want to wiggle my wrist very quickly, I had to stiffen my elbow. In other words, the law of the linkage is that you must have proximal stiffness to unleash and allow distal athleticism. Um, every one of those stiffnesses has a cost in terms of joint load, uh, etc. Then we get into, well, if you have insufficient mobility at a joint, it upsets the linkage. And now um, you must work somewhere else in that linkage to create either mobility or 
proximal stability. And those stress risers are often associated with pain when you know about them and can document them. So in essence, what, what I'm hearing here too, is that we may have kind of jumped the gun a little bit by just focusing on static posture here when in essence, somebody might in a static postural evaluation have that typical kind of lower cross syndrome, but their functional adaptation for movement might be very different in terms of the way things are recruited or used in the activities that they're doing. Is that, is that accurate? Very accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I could give you a simple example of that and a more complex example of that. Uh, I think I'm up for the simple one. I'm up uh, for the simple example. Yeah. Okay. Stand up straight and lift your tail increase your lordosis, what did that Mm. just do to your thoracic spine? Mm -hmm. Now, if you had a thoracic pain trigger, uh, by extension, your pelvic tilt just created pain in your thoracic spine, for example. So there's a really simple one. Um, Here might be a more interesting one. Let's take a runner, a recreational runner who runs 40 kilometers a week. I'm, I'm assuming you two are Americans. Yes, we are. Okay, well, let, let me put that into miles then. Sorry. Right. When are you going to join this the scientific <laughs> units of the hey, world? Hey, we keep asking that question too, but I don't, I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime. Uh, okay, so, let, yeah. let's take a, an American recreational runner who might run, say, 30 uh, miles a week. They have um, low back pain that is increased when they sit at the computer for 20 minutes and relieved when they go for a walk for 20 minutes. So they don't have nonspecific back pain. I've already given you some details that we already know something about that pain in a specific nature. Um, But as we probe the pain, we find out that they have a hip stiffness if we put them on all fours and we rock their pelvis towards their, their, their heels, we see that their right hip gets hung up. And then we test it for pain sensitivity. And we find the labrum is sensitized with internal rotation. What is the cause of that sensitization? And we follow it through. And then when they run, uh, we measure their foot going into pronation, stressing the knee, turning the hip into internal rotation every single time they take a stride. Now you do that over 30 miles a week. Uh, their hip is so painful that when they now sit down, they sit in a way to relieve the pain in the hip capsule. They round their spine and get uh, pain in an open fissured disc bulge. So there might be a real house of cards for you to to go through. But again, Sherlock Holmes uh, would be able to document all of that. Now it's time to run the clinical trial. A little bit of foot eversion. I might send them to a soft tissue guru and tune the linkage for stiffness and, and uh, uh, compliance. And sure enough, the hip sensitivity reduces and so does the back pain, as they said. So there, w- there would be a complex example Yeah, through the linkage. Mm-hmm. And I'm jumping the outline a little bit here, but I, I can't resist uh, highlighting what you just said about stiffness and compliance because so many times those are juxtaposed as either we're going to make it strong or we're going to make it loose. And this is really relevant to my work as a manual therapist, because most of my tools are about helping things relax or helping things be longer. Uh, Can you, would you mind saying something about the role of that? Does that belong anywhere? Because so much of spinal therapy often is about getting stiffness, getting strength. My tools come out the other way. And I find ways to be helpful, but how does, how does that fit into your thinking, Stu? Well, our clients, patients, athletes form a subject N equals one. So in order to answer that properly, we have to have the individual in front of us. What we are doing is tuning a linkage, strategic compliance and mobility in one place with strategic stiffness, which is the uh, mathematical reciprocal of compliance uh, elsewhere. Now, the body really doesn't modulate compliance to control movement, but it does stiffness. So when a muscle contracts, it does two things. Muscle contraction creates force. Everyone gets that, but it also creates stiffness. 
Now that's a very nonlinear function with, with activation, but that's how the body controls motion. So I might have a back pain patient who is over braced, over stiffened, and I'll say, we're going to hover. Align your ears over your shoulders, your shoulders over your, your hips, your hips over your knees, and the knees over the middle of your foot. Now learn to stand with just a hover. You will notice that there's no real force involved, but it's just sufficient stiffness so they don't fall down. Uh, if I want to throw a ball, I had to turn my hips with controlled stiffness through my core to rotate my shoulder. If I fail to do that, the stress goes into the spine rather than into the elastic tissues across the hip, across the shoulders, and the final elastic storage and recovery in the hand, all highly tuned uh, compliance and stiffness. So stiffness F equals KX. You must have a, a, a change in posture together with a force modulated by K, uh, the stiffness. So I'm, I'm showing you, yes, you as a uh, manual therapist do change the mechanical properties of the spring to modulate its ability to store and recover elastic energy, but so does the brain. It can instantaneously change the K of the spring, the muscle, through activation. So uh, one experiment we might do is called a pogo jump. A person just stands upright and they go up and down like a pogo stick. Now, stiffen the calf muscles with high activation. You won't move. Decrease the activation, you just fall into the ground. But when you get the tuning right, you create mechanical resonance and all of a sudden you become a pogo stick very efficiently. And now I've just described the gait of a jumping kangaroo. A kangaroo is highly inefficient when it walks, but when it bounds, it tunes the mechanical stiffness, it becomes highly efficient and it actually consumes less oxygen when it's bounding along versus uh, walking with, because it's, it's mechanical linkage is not designed for that. So, uh, do you see how, oh, I, I wish we had uh, a couple of beers, a jar of peanuts, and we could really have fun together getting into the nuances. Indeed. These are never-ending discussions. And a pogo stick in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is how I used to teach, you know. <laughs> we had yeah. fun in, in lectures. But uh, anyway, there, there's a little bit of a, a thought pattern on not only passive modulation of stiffness and compliance but active as well the way the brain controls uh contraction which is interesting you're saying the body doesn't modulate compliance you're saying the only active thing the nervous system does is contract something i'm assuming you're meaning uh, um i no i didn't say that at all actually oh yeah we did an experiment we well we just a moment now because i yeah. again i i know who you are and you might really appreciate this. We took a group of men and women, university student aged men and women, and we had them just simply slouch on a stool. They flexed their neck, their full spine, and just sat slouched like that for 20 minutes. We then got them to stand up and remove the chronic stress on the passive tissues, the fascia, the ligaments, et cetera, of their spine. Even after half an hour till mm -hmm. the- I'm doing that by the way, I'm sitting up as you speak. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the residual stiffness had not yet returned to the men. It took well over half an hour for those men to regain their normal stiffness. The women regained it much faster. I presented this at the World Congress on Biomechanics, and there was a, a very well-known neuroscientist and biomechanist in the audience, a guy named Roger Anoka. He, he, he wrote a textbook on the neuromechanical something or other. Yeah, I'm I sorry, read that, I yeah, forget. Neuromechanical Basis of Kinesiology, I think. That's that it. Yeah. Now, Roger is no slouch. Roger's mm -hmm. an outstanding scientist. And he put up his hand and he said, why the difference between men and women? And I said, I don't know. I've wondered, but I don't know. And he said, we have some evidence to suggest that women have the neurological ability to modulate 
ligament stiffness. Now, we know they have the hormonal ability to modulate ligament stiffness with, yeah. you know, the hormone relax and then whatnot in the whole childbirth process. But, uh, and now I, 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 you'd have to ask Roger more uh, about what he meant by that. But, you know, there's so much that we don't know. And, uh, I just thought you might be interested in that as something to follow up. I am. I appreciate that. And the women were able to return to a stiffness sooner. That we, that we documented much sooner. So mm -hmm. if you get a fella who's been sitting, and, and I used this actually in a consulting case that I did with uh, ambulance drivers, uh, emergency uh, workers. Um, they were sitting in the ambulance driving to the accident scene or the, the scene where they were required sitting slouched in the uh, ambulance chair. Now, they got there and there was a 400 pound heart attack victim in the bathtub. Now you got to admit that's a tough lift. Mm -hmm. Would you like to do it after sitting slouched for half an hour in an ambulance? Or would you like to warm up your back just a little bit? Now, of course yeah. we said, well, we're going to put a lumbar uh, seat, uh, support in that ambulance and not allow those mechanics to uh, occur because we documented that male will be carrying that residual stress and, and strained passive tissues in their back for at least the next half an hour. Not so uh, in, in women, apparently. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, the, the application of all of these things are just yeah. so interesting. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. Yeah. Oh, but posture doesn't matter if you've heard that recently on oh, some yeah. of the discussions. Yeah, lots of that. Yeah, right. Or, or you can, and I heard somebody make a tweak on that discussion that said posture doesn't matter except when it does. And, you know, okay. Actually, I, I like that. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. You know, if you have no pain and, uh, you know, we're, we're talking so moderate uh, human conditions here, that, that's fine. But yeah. when a person has pain and they have pain because of a certain posture, posture matters. I mean, yeah. there's, there's lots of studies on that, by the way, that, that's, that's easy to defend. Sure. And I've, I've appreciated your descriptions of neutral as a range, as opposed to a certain position, say, yes. where posture matters with some give around that place right. where it matters mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah that neutral zone again has been heavily discussed and misinterpreted by people who've never done the work which is uh, <laughs> that's another issue who has influence in in social media i suppose but the neutral zone isn't a number it is a concept only highly modulated by things like uh, load, for example, you can measure the neutral zone of a muscle, but then compress the joint, suck it together, and all of a sudden the neutral zone shrank. Um, the uh, breaking points and uh, the neutral zone, uh, well, theoretically, the stiffness of a joint increases with load. And if you keep putting load on it, theoretically, you could get to infinite stiffness. And that, in other words, it doesn't move and the, and the neutral zone just went to zero. So when you say it's a range, you see it, it, there's a lot of moving parts till that go into that to have that discussion on, uh, you know, what's the neutral zone or neutral range here. Um, it changes by the uh, second, by, by the force, the joint position. And, uh, you know, uh, it's so fun when I would take uh, our, our undergraduate students and uh, I'd bring a student down in front of the, uh, the class and we talk about how do you execute a jujitsu armbar on an opponent? Because your job is to stress the joint to the point where the person taps out, gives up. They say, I'm, I'm finished. Now, what did you do? You had to distract the joint and take away all controlling stiffness. In other words, you greatly increased the neutral zone and then put it into a very vulnerable position. When you're in that position, one degree or one millimeter of posture change is going to tear their shoulders 
or at least uh -huh. cause so much pain that they give up. Yeah. So uh, Whitney, when you said posture doesn't matter until it does, if, <laughs> if you can't get that, please come to jujitsu class. You will understand very, very quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah a bit of a background many years ago in martial arts. I'm quite uh, psychosomatically familiar with that concept. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So posture, that's what isn't, what is jujitsu? It's, it's yeah. posture and mm -hmm. uh, playing with that uh, stress, pain, and neutral position or range, et cetera. Yeah. Um, one other thing I'd really love to hear your, your take on here, you know, in looking at a lot of the orthopedic literature around back pain, there's a lot, it seems like there's a lot of focus on some of those core structural elements, the vertebra, the discs, the facet joints, and those types of things. And in our world, the people who are most of our listeners are mostly soft tissue manual therapists. And I'd, I'd like to hear your sort of take on what do you think is the most valuable and beneficial aspects of the approaches to our work in dealing with a lot of these kinds of, of back pain complaints, mainly, you know, soft tissue manipulation. Right. I, I have so many uh, opinions, not all of it. I can base on an experiment that we we've done. We we've done some uh, investigations of chiropractic manipulation as you, you, you may or uh, may not know, but uh, I, I, I'm, going to promote this, I guess. Um, if a clinician read our textbook for clinicians, Low Back Disorders, I've really described the uh, assessment to uh, probe pain uh, in there and how what you do can play a role. Let me give you some examples. Um, I don't know. I, I've, I work in some very high performance sport circles. Mm. I don't know of an, of a world-class sprinter who doesn't travel with a mechanical manual tissue therapist. They are so close to breaking and tearing their hamstrings, uh, so many parts of, of their system. People don't realize the stress of a hundred meters at full out effort. They have no clue. Never in their life have they had to survive 100% effort. They don't know what is required. Those athletes do. And without the tuning of their tissues by that manual therapist, they will not reach speed nor have the resilience to compete uh, at that level. So there's my, my first thought on that. I had a double sport Olympian. Two very uh, different sports, although they were both power strength uh, sports. Uh, this athlete came with back pain sufficient that they couldn't train. It was predominantly the way that they were training, the exercises that they were doing, the volume that they were doing that was causing their back to be so angry that they couldn't withstand the stresses of the sport. So we, we figured that out with assessment and we gave them a new training program and we alleviated all of that. But in the end, there was a little snag. It happened to be in one of the quadratus lumborum muscles. It just wouldn't let go. I don't have manual skills. So I build up my colleagues who um, have these skills. We form a team. And I said to the athlete, I've done all I can for you. You're, you're load resilient, but would you go see this uh, clinician? And within three treatments, that snag was gone. Unleash them and back to the Olympics. So, you know, I, I can give uh, example uh, after example uh, in, in my own life, I broke my hip as a youngster and it went arthritic prematurely. And my whole adult life, I walked with a limp until I had hip replacement. Now I look and feel fabulous, at least when I walk. <laughs> but my point was, I was 45 when the surgeon said, you're, you're, you're ready for a replacement. Well, I had a, a colleague, you may know of him, Dr. Clayton Skaggs in uh, St. Louis. He's the medical director of the uh, Central Institute for Human Performance. And uh, Clay would say, oh, let me have a look at that hip. And he would work his magic with his hands on not giving me a massage, 
unspecifically a general massage because that would hurt my hip. I would go get massages and I couldn't sleep at night. My hip was so relaxed and loose. It just ached and ached. Mm -hmm. Instead, um, he very strategically released some structures, uh, facilitated others, and he would work through my first rib and whatnot. And, you know, here's me talking as a scientist. I cannot explain what he did, but mm -hmm. you would feel uh, the difference. And again, uh, Whitney, until you, you, you're, you, you won't believe this, but that effect would last weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, I had my hip replaced when I was 57. And I credit those 12 years to Dr. Skaggs. I saw him every three or four months. I'd travel to St. Louis from Canada because of all the clinicians who I would meet at conferences. And they say, oh, well, let me play with that. And they'd hurt me. Whereas he would <laughs> just had the gift. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you know Baron Spatos in Los Angeles, who has a client list of just superstars who come and see him. Or do you know Anne Frederick? She wrote the book uh, Stretch to Win. Mm -hmm, I do. Uh, yeah. And uh, a couple of times she worked on me and, and we ended up laughing. We called, I said, you, you, you used to make love to my hip and, or you romanced my hip. And that poor woman would hold my leg for 20 minutes. And we would talk about things very quietly. And then she would start to work it. My God, 20 minutes. But what she was doing, she was preparing my neurology, not my biomechanics, I don't think. It was my neurology to receive what she was going to do. Mm -hmm. And remember, I by this time, I had a very heavy limp. I would walk out of the clinic without a, li a limp. So anyway, I don't know. It, it's it's a, a bit of a personal experience, but uh, there's some uh, thoughts now. What did each one of them do? Uh, Stu McGill can't explain uh, the high science of, of what each one of them did. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they didn't do anything and nothing yeah. matters. So they did a, a hell of a lot. Yeah. There's, but, yeah. There's so much there in your stories. I mean, there's so many more questions. I would have to order another round of those beer and peanuts to get mm -hmm. in them, but yeah. that's almost an amazing place to look at our off ramp here. That is such a, you know, a poignant set of examples and an acknowledgement that there's uh, so much more going on than any of us understand. Hmm. What do you think, Whitney? Anything else we want to? Well, uh, uh, yeah, I think just as a kind of um, a, a teaser, a curious thing, um, Stu, maybe if you can just mention briefly what you're going to be talking about at the Fascial Research Congress until I think you had something else you were going to ask too, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention your belly dance research. <laughs> <laughs> Where does that figure in to all these things? This is a, this is a, a study of belly dance, accomplished belly dancers. And as I understood, right. they didn't have pain. No, that puzzled me But before I started the study. And, yeah. uh, you know, as I said, I was looking and studying injury clusters, mechanical uh, and psychological stressors and all the rest of it. And then one of my graduate students joined this belly dance group. And she said to me, uh, Stu, we, we, we don't know anything about these women. Um, they don't seem to have any back pain. Let's go and measure what is going on. So we, we took a scientific fishing trip and it's true. They had the most extraordinary motor control. They could shimmy their hips from side to side and keep their, their, their uh, rib cage statically still and do the opposite and create these uh, reptilian waves in their spine. Whereas I can give you flexion and extension. I don't think I can give you a reptilian wave through the spine. That, that's quite a <laughs> yeah. gift. Yes. Um, but, you know, here's, here's the thing. And it was one of the common themes that I kept converging on throughout my life. You cannot have it all. There's always a cost to a particular ability. The more mobility and fine control they had, it was at the expense of strength. Mm -hmm. He couldn't, I wouldn't ask one of them to lift a heavy load. Their spines were too supple. Yeah. Uh, you need to be a, a, a you know, have, a, have an I-beam in your spine if you're going to deadlift a thousand pounds. So mm. uh, you're not going to ask them to run a chainsaw to help you uh, clear no, branches or something like that. No. Yeah. Oh, you do know me. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> anyway, 
um, you know, not one of them could do a competent sit-up. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. didn't have the strength to do a competent sit-up. Uh, again, reinforcing the point, the wonderful mobility had, they had came at the trade-off of uh, strength. So uh, most people want to be somewhat middling between mm. a lot of strength, a lot of mobility, et cetera. And that, that's when we start getting into using the word sufficient. Do you there have you sufficient strength, sufficient stiffness, sufficient compliance, sufficient mobility, etc.? Now, we can tune and adapt your body towards one of those, realizing that you're going to give up on some of the others. Yeah, I think, you know, that was illustrated so well, I think, in some of the introductory comments in your back mechanic book, um, talking about you know, people saying like, oh, you should go to Pilates or yoga because you have back pain or something like that. And for certain individuals, that's just absolutely not the thing they should be doing just because their physiology and mechanics are different. Right. There's mm-hmm. a wonderful series of books written by a yogi who, I, well, he, he, he practices and follows our science very well. His name is Bernie Clark. And I think the books are Your Yoga your spine, your yoga, your shoulder, your yoga, your back, uh, etc. But there, it very much guides people through self-assessments of their joint anatomy and whatnot, and why some asanas or postures uh, hurt uh, them that might be beneficial to others, uh, etc. But everything comes at a cost. Thank you, Stu. What are you going to talk about this year at the Montreal Fascial Research Congress? Uh, Well, you know, I've been retired from the university for seven years now. And for the past three or four years, Mark Driscoll, uh, one Uh of the professors who's uh, organizing this, has been after me to come and do a talk. And every year I've said, Mark, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I haven't done the work for the past seven years, I, I really have trouble remembering references. I can't even remember my own studies. And he said, oh, just, you know, uh, and the day I left the university, this might strike you as strange. I said to all the graduate students, come to my office. And I had three walls of books, come and take them. Here are all my research papers, come and take those. And I said to all the professors, here's several million dollars worth of instruments and stuff i'll i'm locking i'm just walking away there it is i never thought anyone would ever ask me to do anything again i i thought i'd be sawing my my next year's winter wood supply (laughs) anyway i was wrong so mark has asked me i said mark i don't have slides and data anymore (coughs) excuse me so what i can tell is a little bit of a story <coughs> of my journey mm. where I started as a graduate student 40 years ago, peeling the fascia off and throwing it away and trying oh. to understand how muscles in this linkage worked and how my calculations never quite worked. I would take, say, an anesthetized rat. I would leave the left side of their belly muscles, external oblique, internal oblique, transverse abdominis, all intact in ringer solution. And I would stimulate them and create a contraction, measure stiffness, measure force. But on the other side, I would separate the layers into their three constituent layers. In other words, I'd digest the fascia. And then what a difference in performance. I used to think about muscles being agonists and antagonists, but I came to realize that through fascia, the muscles are one. They form a mechanical composite. There are no agonists and antagonists anymore. They're all agonists through this mechanical composite of fascia. So that's where I ended up. And when I retired, I had such difficulty teaching biomechanics to first-year students because, you know, the curriculum is this muscle creates flexion and right. all this sort of stuff when it doesn't. Yeah. You, 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 you get out of a chair, the hamstrings are active, the quadriceps are active, the psoas is active, the gluteals are active. They're all agonists to this grand scheme of creating sufficient stability, proximal stiffness, and then creating a net joint torque. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the redundancy, you can create that through so many different combinations. And then let's cut one of the muscles. 
the system still works because of the uh, fascia creating this wonderful redundant composite. So that's the end of my lecture, but it's the story of how my brain got there. I don't know if this is going to be of interest to anybody or not. But, no, that's well, I fantastic. think you'll find a great deal of interest. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. And there's got to be some uh, lessons in that for the world. We'll leave that aside for now, but something about the, there are no antagonists, you know, we're no agonists, antagonists, we're all agonists somehow. Yeah, that'd be something in there. How can people find out more about your work and what you do? Well, we have a website called backfitpro.com. And if you're a clinician, there's one portal of entry. And we've got uh, all the resources, books and courses and that sort of thing for interested people. And if you're a back pain person, we have another portal and uh, it describes there is a reason for your pain and here are some of the steps. So when I wrote back mechanic, it starts out as uh, guiding the reader through a self-assessment of their pain. So for the first time, they realize why when they roll over in bed, they get a sharp pain or why when they sit at the computer for 20 minutes, they get back pain and then go for a walk for 20 minutes, it takes the pain away or vice versa. They sit mm. down and their pain goes away and they go for a walk and it, 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 it helps guide them and then gives them strategies to wind down the pain and then build up a pain-free resilience for uh, getting through life. Anyway. That's, What's that one? What's that website? Well, First one's Backfit Prayer, the second one? It's all on Backfit Pro. It's all on Backfit Pro. Okay. Dot com. Yeah. But uh, these are the first book uh, for people, lay, mm -hmm. lay public with back pain is back, back, mechanic. back mechanic. But the book for clinicians to learn how to do a very thorough assessment to converge mm -hmm. on a precise understanding uh, of why this person has pain, that's called low back disorders. And then once a person has gained resilience to do everyday things, but they want to get back to swimming or cycling or deadlifting or whatever it is, uh, that book is called uh, Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. So each book has uh, a little bit of a different uh, contribution, I suppose, in, uh, depending on who the reader is. Thank you. We'll put yeah. all those into the show notes. Yeah. And I on behalf of the world of people in pain, I would just like to say, you know, a humongous thank you for all of your many years of work and dedication to this. And, and you certainly have been an inspiration to me and lots of other people for all of the wonderful things that you've contributed. So uh, again, it's quite an honor to have you with us here today. And thanks uh, again so much for your time and your contributions. Well, <clears throat> thank you so much for, uh, having me, Whitney and Till. And uh, I guess, uh, Till, I'm going to meet you uh, in Montreal. And, and Whitney, until we meet again, uh, stay well and uh, resilient. All right. That <laughs> nice. sounds good. Yeah. Good. And do remember Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say learning adventures start here, and they see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast. And they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. Check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where thinking practitioner listeners save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. And we would like to say a thank you to all of our listeners and to all of our sponsors. You can stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, and extras. That is over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find that with you? My site is advanced-trainings.com. We should also mention the Fascia Research Congress or Fascia Research Society is a special sponsor of today's episode. Go ahead, check out information about their conference at fasciaresearchsociety.org. Uh, look for us on social media at our names, Till Luca or... Uh, Whitney Lowe, that'll be my name today. Uh, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts as it does help other people find the show. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. So please share the word. Do tell a friend. And thank you again so much for dropping by and listening with us today. <laughs>